Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of A Little Bit Famous with Ted Murata. It's really awesome to be here recording this introduction. It's September 21st, 7.44 p.m., and this episode will air a little bit after midnight. Um, my guest this week is Holly Hutchison. Uh, she's fantastic. She's delightful. She's, uh, you know, from the A&R world, from the music executive world, and she tells a really interesting and fascinating story about life from that side of the music and entertainment uh, industry. Really, really interesting, and I was really happy to have her on. Um, I want to let you know, too, that next week's episode, airing next Wednesday, my guest is Steve Lillywhite. And I'm absolutely honored to have him on the show. We had an awesome talk. He is wild. Um, he's one of the most legendary record producers on the planet. He's worked with uh, Dave Matthews Band and U2 and Peter Gabriel and countless other artists. And uh, I'm really looking forward to you being able to hear that episode. So my waffles are in the toaster. I'm going to eat them. And uh, I'm going to let you hear this episode, episode 15, with my awesome guest, Holly Hutchison. <laughs> My guest today is Holly Hutchison. She's an artist advocate music executive, and she is A&R Girl. Holly, welcome to the show. It's really good to see you again. Hi, how are you? It's been forever. Yeah, I know. Here. I mean, we we first spoke a few months ago, maybe May or June, about the idea of you coming on the show, and, and you've had a very, very busy summer. Yes, indeed. A lot yeah. of stuff going on. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into all of it. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I would like to kind of start at the beginning because I had a guest on um, last week's show named Larry Crane. He's the founder and editor of Tape Op Magazine, which is a really okay. great magazine, music production magazine. And I asked him, you know, how do you become a you know, music publisher? How do you become a, 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 he owns a recording studio? How do you become a producer guy? Um, and I, have, I feel like I have the same kind of question for you, which is how do you become a&R girl, you know, I, I'm a musician. I come from the world of music and the music industry from the perspective of a musician. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not that familiar with the other, with the other, that other side of the world, especially the A&R world. Um, but I kind of want to get, get started by talking about like, what was going on when you were a kid? You know, what was your, what was your life like? Was it a musical life? What, you know, were you drawn to music and at a very young age, did you want to play an instrument? All those kinds yeah. of things. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you would say, um, as far as I can remember, two years old, um, my father was in bands when he was younger. So he, when he was in college, he was in bands for backing up like Curtis Lee, Chubby Checker. Um, wow. cello in the tri-state area of New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania. And um, they actually also went into New York one time. Somebody, you know, they would play in the Poconos and places where a lot of New York City people and executives would go in the music business. And they actually had an opportunity um, one time to go and, um, you know, record a single 
And then they went in and met with a lady that they weren't sure who she was. And then they find out later that they were auditioning to be the peppermint twist band for the, for the peppermint lounge. No kidding. (laughs) They didn't know that. And they kind of walked away from it thinking it was, you know, know, they didn't know what it was, but anyway. um, And it kind of parlays into what I do because they didn't have a manager back then. They had local DJs and booking agents and buyers, but never had a manager or an A&R person, Mm -hmm. um, somebody that was the artist advocate champion. So they kind of walked away from it thinking it was just a bunch of whatever. And then they found like out a, later like what a scam or something or yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Cause they were from a small town. So they weren't used to this. They just right. went, we're like, okay, I guess when they met with the lady, my dad's story is she had lipstick all over her face in an underground bar and she was drunk. And so he didn't take it serious. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine what instrument did your dad play? He played guitar. Okay. Um, I, you know, when I was in, I had a garage band in high school and we started to do okay. And we played a fairly big venue near where I lived. And a guy showed up and said, I'm really interested in you guys. I'd, I'd, I'd be interested in managing you. And we were like, get lost. You know, we, we were the same way. We were like, who is this guy? We, you know, God knows, God knows how that might've gone if we had talked to him a little bit, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. so yeah, go so, ahead. Yeah. So he, and he also did really good Elvis impersonations and he was, uh, went on to be a teacher. And so every year for um, their spring concerts, he would be, he would perform and dress up as Elvis. So as far as I can remember, two years old, he was saying, that's all right, mama, to me and practice and rehearse at home. So, and he was very um, dynamic and doing it. And so I was all, I was like, from a very young age, like somebody was performing for me. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> and then, and so you said you grew up in the tri-state area of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, did you did you get involved in music yourself in, in terms of playing an instrument or doing anything like that along the way? Well, they made us play recorder. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't have to play? Somehow I got out of it. I don't know, but... They got me a little, one of those little organs when I was little because I did show an interest and um, I would teach myself how to play. So mm-hmm. I can play some things by ear, but I can't read music, but I know the notes and I know, you know, basically I do have an ear for notes and all that yeah. kind of stuff. But yeah. yeah. My so it comes natural playing. from being around him. And then I could play a little and, and pick up things here and there on the piano, but mm-hmm. um, never a bit, I'm more of a listener. And I, I explained that to the artists, like, you know, you can write a great song. You can play your instrument well, or you can sing well or perform well. I listen well. Mm-hmm. That's a hugely important skill. I mean, certainly if you're, especially if you're someone who's scouting artists and scouting Mm -hmm. talent, I mean, um, and I want to ask you, I'll, I'll, when we, in a little while, I'm going to ask you about that because that's a very kind of mysterious thing to me that I, that I'm very intrigued by the idea of, of, of going out and kind of scouting talent and say these, this, (laughs) these people have what it takes. So we'll, we'll, I'll file that away and we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, What what was your trajectory as a kid? As you were growing up and going through school, what did you think you were going to be when you were when you grew up, as it were? Well, I mean, I was always uh, as far I can remember, nine years old. I was going to go to California. I was going to go to college. I was going to be an attorney for the longest oh. time. I was going to be a lawyer. That was it. And then I had that too. <laughs> you were going to be a lawyer. I did. I did. Yeah. And then I had this conversation with a friend of mine who was really smart in high school. And he was like, I don't want to be a lawyer because I don't always want to have to compromise my values. Oh. And I went, 
Wow. I'd never wow. really thought of it that way before. And I was like, yeah, me either. And, mm -hmm. um, and then I saw it I ended up dropping out of college and joining a band. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. Um, okay. So that was your plan. So, so what happened? At what point did you decide you know, that that was not for you? I don't know. I, I've always been inspired by music though. Like, you know, my mom would say, all right, if you get straight A's, we can go down and get that Pat Benatar album, mm -hmm. you know, to, at the mm -hmm. store, um, things like that. Uh, you just, and then riding my bike, I remember um, taking a cord and like attaching a little, my little grape color transistor radio um, to my bike riding around the neighborhood. And I, I'll never forget um, Sarah playing, you know, from Fleetwood Mac. And just oh. driving, the wind yeah. blowing in my hair. And like, so I always loved music. And then I also would run around um, my grandmother's basement and bug her and pretend I was being a DJ, making songs up, like making a story out of the songs from the radio mm -hmm. and recording it with my, she bought me a little tape recorder. And I used to do the stuff, but um, yeah. So I just, I was doing all that. I, I was uh, chosen by the district to represent our area for girl state for junior government. And um, so I was all along the path to be an attorney. And um, I was in college. I had a track scholarship. I was, I was a long jumper. Um, and I just always loved music. And um, we heard uh, John Bon Jovi was staying in Allentown, which is like, was probably like 20 minutes from our college. And I was a sophomore. And I remember somebody was saying, Oh, he's, he's staying at the, um, He's staying at this one hotel there. I'm like, okay, let's go over and see if we can find him. And I never did anything like that. My friends and I, we were like, you know, in college studying. We, you know, okay, frat parties, but yeah. never like, okay, let's go see what music, famous musicians around. So we just decided to go over there. And then when we went over there. We saw these guys with long hair get out of a van. We're like, that's not Bon Jovi. Well, let's find out who they are because they look like they're from around here. Mm -hmm. And, um, we found, you know, we, we kind of went into the hotel and we're listening around for loud music, you know, in the hotel, in the rooms. And, and then all of a sudden we go, ah, this is silly. Let's get on the elevator and go back. Got to study for exams in the morning. Finals were happening. And all of a sudden Rob Afuso from Skid Row gets on the elevator and he's like, Hey girls, where are you going? And we're like, Oh, well, we were just leaving. <laughs> and, and I said, you know, we kind of made up a little story that we were staying there too. And he said, Oh, well, I said, well, who are you? What are you look like you're in a band? I am. What band are you in? Skid Row. Never heard of them. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I guess they hadn't hit yet, huh? <laughs> no, not. They weren't even signed yet. Oh, and he wow. said, he said, oh, our friend, um, John Bon Jovi asked us to open for him because Cinderella can't start the tour yet. And I was like, oh, he's like, why don't you come hang out with us? So we go to, to their room and you know, I don't want to discredit the big bad rock and rollers, but they were really nice guys. It, it was completely, they, I don't want to ruin again the rock and roll thing but the fantasy the rock and roll <laughs> fantasy <laughs> they're actually really nice guys and it was funny i'll never forget rachel answering the door when rob knocks on the door and rachel's like you're not the pizza guy <laughs> <laughs> come in anyway and then we go in and we're hanging out talking to them and stuff you know everybody's like oh we are in their hotel room is there drugs and alcohol and this and that no there was pizza and you know five guys in the band and one guy staring at himself in the mirror the whole time, which was their first singer, Matt Fallon. And then um, after that, uh, they, they were just sweethearts. They're like, oh, you're coming to the show. So we went to the show. And then um, like two days later, I got, a, I got a perfect score on my Spanish exam when I went back and studied that night. 
And uh, I was like, I want to do this. You know, I want to mm-hmm. be around the music business. And, and Rob Afuso was studying at NYC to be a PR, you know, a public relations person while he was doing the band. What, what, what instrument did he play in the band? Just- he was the drummer. Okay. The original drummer. Yeah. So we went back and hung out with them afterwards. And I was like, I got to stay in touch with these guys. And then from there, I was like, well, what do I do? So I made friends with the college radio guy. And, and then I, you know, what, what clubs are around here and airport music hall in Allentown. It was like a airport hangar warehouse, where they had bingo um, most nights, but they would have concerts. It was like 1200 capacity. And I said, I went there and I said, I want to be an intern. What do I need to do? <laughs> Hand out flyers, whatever, bring us fans. Tell us about what's going on. Okay. So that's what I did. I was going to college full time, working in a factory to pay for my books and my car insurance and stuff. And, and then uh, I would go to the club, you know, on the weekend to network and meet the band. So I met Walter O'Brien, who, who was, Pan, was Pantera's manager that broke Pantera. He, he was managing metal church at the time. And, uh, and then I, um, this, I don't know if I'm skipping ahead, but, um, I stayed in touch with Skid Row. They got rid of Matt and they got Sebastian and they called, uh, my house and they said, Hey, we're ready to play up there at your, your place. Oh, oh I got to back up a little. I used to go to their sound checks and their practices in, in, uh, Tom's river. I would sit on the steps and watch him practice without a singer. Mm. I would drive down to the shore, go visit him. And um, I was like, wow, this is great. And they're like, yeah, we're ready to play. I said, okay, I'm gonna, but can I come out to another show and do an interview with you? So I have their first interview with Sebastian on cassette. Oh, nice. Because I wanted to get the interview and take it to the, the paper in the area and put that in the paper to promote. This is all what I was learning. You know, yeah. as, as a first timer, I got to promote the show. Right. Of course. <laughs> that So you already, you were already developing the instincts as a promoter. I mean, I, I, yeah. I mean, and then I hand painted them t-shirts and, um, <laughs> and then the, of course there's big snowstorms happening at the time. And then the day of the show, um, I'm going race my first big show. And there's like a blizzard happening. Who's all going to come to my show? And then I get there and the guy that's running the show says to me, Oh, don't worry. There's one person coming. That's, you know, the most important person. I go, who? And he goes, Ahmed Erdogan, the founder wow. of Atlantic Records, is flying in a helicopter in a snowstorm to come see Skid Row. He's thinking about checking them out for the label. I said, Wow. <laughs> that's, that's really huge. Cool. Yeah. So I had the whole back room um, decorated with Skid Row posters, their shirts. The morning call article I did was all, I put papers all over the place to show the article and had food. And then he came and it was so awesome. He came with um, Toon Jerem and, um, and then they, they watched the show. He was like rocking out down there with his sleeves rolled up and his jacket off. Cause they always dressed in suits. They were like well-dressed. Oh yes. You always knew when the, the record label guys were there and they were stylish. And uh, you know, and afterwards I was standing in, um, in the, uh, apartment dressing room there was like an apartment living room thing and i'm standing next to snake uh dave sabo the guitar player for skid row one of the founding members and writers and he's standing there and amit's standing next to him and i'm standing next to amit and amit says to dave you sign with Atlantic records you'll never worry about money again just <laughs> in oh. this turkish accent and yeah. i'm standing there going i want to be this guy 
I don't want to be a man. I want to be this guy. Yeah. So that's been my driving force. I think Ahmed Erdogan is an amazing talent of discovering talent. He's a vibe guy. Yeah. 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 He's a legend. I mean, you know, he's like kind of the legend. Uh, Yeah. A a serious vibe guy. Like, you know, I mean, he knows hits too, but I mean, he just was all about the artist and and feel, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a lot. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, just the sentence that you just uttered that he said, you know, you sign with Atlantic, you never worry about money again. That's the sentence that I think every band wants to hear. You know, I sure as hell wanted to hear it when I was, you know, when we were touring all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's that's like the kind of that's that's the ideal dream of a band, you know, is that, you know, you get signed and there's tons of support and you make a great record and it becomes a hit and you have a career as a musician. But I know, you know, as well as anyone that that doesn't always work that way. You know, I mean, it's fair to say that the odds are are not in your favor that it will work that way. Oh, yeah. Know? And it's the same way for A&R people and people that want to be in the business, too. I mean, just to get out of my town, you know, I had to get through college and I'm working at this factory. And there's so many people around that are just trying to survive and live life and pay bills. So they see this kid that's going to college. And even though I'm still working there, you know, I'm, I'm not lazy or anything but they're like oh yeah big dreams like i've my favorite artist on the wall in front of, i used to i used to weld electrodes that go into blueprint machine lands that's what mm-hmm. i did yeah like thousands of them right mm-hmm. sitting there, these little things pressing the down with my foot and listening in my headphones and i was like oh you'll see it just made me inspired more anybody that said i couldn't do something you'll see and it's you know that background like i didn't have any family and friends like in the, I didn't have family and friends in the main music industry, the mm. national, international level. Like my dad did it locally here in the tri-state area, but he didn't have any connections. And so I feel like I identify with a lot of the artists who come from places outside of LA, Chicago, New York, you know, mm. Atlanta, Nashville. I, I really connect with the artists that come from those suburban and rural areas because I understand how hard it is to make it. Yeah. You just, you know, I had cornfields around me where I grew up. I think we had one flashing traffic light. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I mean, I've, I lived it. I was in a band for over to touring over, for over 10 years, we started getting labels coming around. Um, uh, really after we started selling out venues in New York city, that was when they first started to kind of snoop around, yeah. you know, and eventually but you had got... to go there. You had to go to the city. Oh, we did. Mm-hmm every type of show you can imagine from every dive bar to you know all over the country you know we just crisscrossed the country again and again and again and built the following that way just uh, just from tireless road work mm-hmm. um, but it's yeah <laughs> it, oh god <laughs> yeah you know i don't even i haven't shared even a fraction of a percent of the of the stuff we went through and i know i know you you're familiar with it if you're working mm-hmm. with bands you know you know the struggles and I mean, oh, not yeah. just the, not just the exhaustion of being on the road, but then you start getting into things like addiction and 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 you know all sorts of things, band tensions. I mean, it's a, uh, it can be a pretty yeah. toxic money disappearing. Yeah, all of it. <laughs> yeah, 
Right. Yeah, we I've never made that much money, so we didn't have to worry about it disappearing. Oh, and not in that era, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, um, I think you were going to get some food at this next venue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. We love it when they fed you and gave you drink tickets. Yeah. <laughs> that was... <laughs> Um, okay, so let's go back to this moment here when you're in the room with Skid Row and Atlantic Records is there. And, and, then, and then what happened? I mean, you said you kind of had, it sounds like an epiphany where you were like, I want to be him. I don't want to be the band. I want to do this. So, mm-hmm. so what was your next move from there over, you know, over the course of the next few years or whatever? Um, just, you know, constantly uh, just working around networking at the, at the venue um, and then I, I made connections with, um, through friends and, you know, some artists and stuff um, with Mary Beth McHugh, who was the office manager for Bob Chaparty at Concrete when, when Concrete was in its heyday of mar- you know, marketing and management. And they did the Concrete Foundations and they had the office in New York and, you know, they, the Concrete Marketing and for people that wouldn't know or remember, but concrete marketing would be hired by the labels to do like radio uh, and retail marketing for, t- and then they had tour marketing with retail and all the different kinds of things to help get artists um, off the ground from the major labels and give them some support at mm-hmm. retail and radio. And um, so I went in and I interviewed and they said, yeah, you can work here once or twice a week. So again, while I'm in college working at the factory, networking on the weekends, I would take a bus in once or twice a week, two hours into New York City, get $10 for my lunch and (laughs) study on the way home and do homework on the bus on the way home and get back to go to class the next morning. Um, So like usually went in on Thursdays. So it was good. I was networking, meeting people there. And then the last thing I did, I was um, doing the Headbangers Ball music chart which was awesome because I was always watching Headbangers Ball when I wasn't like days that I didn't go. If there wasn't like a concert happening that Saturday, I would be home watching the Headbangers Ball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me so too. To be able to do the chart and <laughs> compile it was like, oh, yeah, OK, I made it. <laughs> That's amazing. That's great. Yeah. So that um, was the first step. <laughs> OK, so that's step one. And then. um and then when do you, I mean, when do you start to feel like you're kind of cracking the door into a different level of, um, you know, of involvement in the, in the industry? Well, there was getting on the plane and leaving after I graduated college and going out to California by myself. I knew two people and, um, like $1,200 in two suitcases, no car, just mm-hmm. flew out, got off a plane and made a plan to stay with some friends, get a job and just build my life. And so that was pretty scary because again, I came from a small town with just a flashing light and <laughs> cornfields. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had to just hope that I made the right decisions and didn't veer off because my parents were really worried that I was going to get caught up in cocaine and all this crazy stuff that was happening in LA in the eighties. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had, I had people where I lived, um, I stayed with some friends and then eventually, you know, moved on into, um, you know, an apartment living situation. And, you know, there would be girls there that were mud wrestlers and working at crazy girls or Tropicana, wherever it was. And they'd be like, what do you do? What? And I'd be <laughs> I mean, well, I do marketing and I was doing marketing for Macy Lippman, which he, he was a reputable guy in the business. He knew mm. everybody. 
So I was doing retail marketing like I was for Bob Chaparty, now for Macy Littman, doing more like pop and mainstream stuff instead of rock. And, um, you know, it was like minimum wage because I was just starting in the business. And then I got a job working at warehouse music stores, like a head cashier um, on the weekend or, you know, after work hours. I had the nine to five and then I was there. And then after that, it was out to the clubs networking again mm. to see who I could know. And, and these girls, they'd be like, why do you do all that? You could just come work three nights a week with us. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, but you know what? If one of these big executive guys that I want to work for someday happens to be there with a band and sticks a 20 in my G string, and then he interviews me <laughs> later, it's not going to be the, you know, the impression that I <laughs> and that's and this is way pre-social media, you know. Yeah. I mean, where you everything leaves a digital footprint. You're you're yeah. worried about someone coming <laughs> and then meeting you for an interview. Yeah, yeah. Wow. either that or my dad jumping in in you know the van with my brothers because they had a construction company, and he threatened, uh, I, "I'm going to throw rotten eggs and tomatoes at you if I find out that you're doing that." <laughs> and I will find you. <laughs> and you know, if you, you know, Liam Neeson, I will hunt you down. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. That would be my dad with me. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. I have to, I, this is awesome. I, but I have to pause for a second because okay. I love LA. I've always, and it's great that you ended up getting there. That's what you wanted to do when you were younger. Mm -hmm. I've been there a bunch of times. I have this incredible romantic fondness for the city. Yeah. And I would love it if you could just for a moment, just sort of tell me a little bit about your personal experience with the atmosphere of LA in the eighties. It was so much fun. <laughs> well, you know, in the, in the eighties, it was, I was there at the very end, like 89 and it was still happening. The, the sunset strip was still happening. Um, so you had the cluster of clubs at sunset strip from like um, the whiskey um, and this is before the Viper Room. They, that came not long after, I think within the year of that. So you had the whiskey, a go-go, then you had the rainbow, you had Gazaris. Um, you know, you had Ten Masa, which was the sushi place that you went out to before, or if you were just people watching that night. And there was people just walking up and down the strip, you know, hair, uh, leather jackets and the makeup and the and, and Gazaris and Oh my gosh. And, and the bands and it's so much activity. It was fun. Like you just, you, some nights you dress up to go and some nights you go like in your sweatpants and sit like kind of under the radar and just watch and people watch. It was amazing. Yeah. Oh my God. That sounds so exciting. Oh yeah. And you never knew who you were going to meet and what was going to happen. Okay. So the one night, um, one night where my friend and I were walking down the strip and all of a sudden, these two guys come up to us and, um, you know, this is a night we're dressed up in our like heels and our mini skirts and whatever. And little bustiers back then. And, you know, <laughs> it's crazy the stuff we were. And we're walking down the street and these two guys come up to us and they're like, hey, um, where are you girls going? We're like, oh, you know, we're just going down to say hi to so-and-so down at the whiskey. And they're like, oh, and, and I was kind of like very shy, not kind of, I was shy back then. Mm -hmm. I would kind of like keep my head down you know like i don't know who these guys are and um my friend though she was the mud wrestler at tropicana so she talked to everybody and uh i look up out of the corner of my eye and the leather coat axel axel rose <laughs> yeah. axel he's on the right rose. hand side of me he's on the right hand side of me 
and his friends on the other side of her. And they're like, oh, we're walking that way too. So they walk down, they start talking to people and we're like, okay. And, uh, they're like, well, do you want to come to this party with us? And we said, no. And they go, what? And they're like, I remember they like kick the fence or something like ego shot. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And our other friends were in this other band. They pulled up. They're like, hey, what are you guys doing? You want to come to our rehearsal? And they were a no-name band. And we're like, mm. yeah, we feel like going home. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so wait a minute. 89. I mean, mm-hmm. wasn't Appetite for, Dest- Appetite for Destruction must have been out by then, right? Or was, oh, it, was. it 90? They were, they were yeah. doing Use oh, Your Illusion. Man. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. I, I mean, I was a, probably a senior in high school, maybe when when yeah. Appetite for Destruction came out. Oh, yeah, That's, it was so much fun. And then there yeah. was like um, um, Barney's Beanery would go there and eat and drink and have fun over there. And then um, there was uh, Exposure Fifty Four over and more in Hollywood instead of West Hollywood. And um, you know, I remember Renee Max, and she's I'm still in touch with her. She's in Nashville now. And um, she she owned and ran the club, her and her husband. Oh, okay. And she and then um, there was another one. The Probe used to have different nights, like the Cat House with Ricky Rockman and these like goth nights and stuff like that. And I remember one night we were like, let's go to Jack and Box afterwards. So we go after out. And next thing you know, they're slashed down in there. Do you have a quarter for the payphone? <laughs> 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 yeah, man. He's like, I just need a ride. <laughs> So this, this is like, amazing wandering around town and another time we we're hanging out with we we saw love hate at exposure 54 and then our friends were like hey let's go hang out over here or whatever and then we end up and i think it was another night guns and roses was sitting around playing cards somewhere in hollywood and i think maybe that some of the jane's addiction people were there too you That's just never just... knew who you're going to hang out with at the party the after parties and stuff yeah so. Yeah, and then wow. later I get you know I got to be friends with um not to get too far ahead but I got to be friends with um with Jane Bainter who is Jane who From, helped put uh, the band together. No kidding. She ended I up don't doing. Know. Yeah, yeah, I don't know anything about doing, that backstory. Oh, she ended up. Well, she you know there's a whole story. You'd have to go read it. I don't want to. I don't. I can't do that justice. But she was friendly with Dave Jordan, who produced their big records, and um he came to Atlantic at one point and brought. Jane um there to do AR too and her and I really clicked. She's such a sweet person. We're still in touch from time to time. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so the band's name is named after her. Yeah. All right. Well, now I'm gonna have to go look up the story. You have to read the story. It's a really fantastic story. And and is Jane says about her? Mm-hmm. No kidding. Wow. Awesome. It was a real person. It's a real yeah. person. Oh my God. That's it's awesome. a whole Hollywood story. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I mean, that's what I love about it. I don't know the whole something about that city. I just can't oh, wait to get back. Oh, get back check there. this out. Here's a good story for you. So I was friends with the guys in Nine Inch Nails, and they were they were living up at the Manson House, which where I mean the Sharon Tate House when they were recording Downward Sweet. Spiral. And so I was like, I'm a huge Sharon Tate fan. I love that that era. I love the Mamas and the Papas, and um, you know all that all the you know late '60s stuff. And so anyway, they're like, oh, you want to come over? It's like, okay. So we go up there and I just watched Helter Skelter, the movie three days before or read the book. I can't remember both probably. I get up there and it's, it's still daylight. So there's nothing creepy, but you're walking down the the driveway and you're, you know, you're on, it's on Cielo. It's, it's not the same house anymore. They've torn it down since then. 
but we're looking out and we're going, oh, there was a body there. There was a body there. Oh my gosh. It's so creepy. And then you look at the door that had the pig written on it. Mm-hmm. And then we went in and we were hanging out. And as it got darker, we started, we were all standing in the kitchen and we heard noises. Oh no. <laughs> what is that? Think of weird noises all the time. It's weird. Yeah. And like Trent had his, all his gear in the living room. Like just filled, the whole room yeah. filled. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Like yeah, right. <laughs> Stuff like that, you know. Yeah. Um, did you did you when you I mean you you're, you're out on the town a lot you're you're watching bands and stuff was there was there were there any particular bands that you saw that were um that were unsigned that were just sort of seemed like maybe hot stuff and then they blew up Well I tended to find the ones that weren't hot stuff that nobody cared about at first and then they got big <laughs> <laughs> So I mean seriously that's kind of how it happened um yeah. I made like I so so after me, let's go back to the job thing. So while I'm at Macy Lipman, um, you know, that kind of came to an end um, and I'm hearing and making friends with people at labels. And so I heard about a, a receptionist position at ADCO mm-hmm. when they were, you know, under Linux before ADCO East West. And so I went in and I, I got that job and I was a receptionist office manager and I remember Mark Gorlick, who's a major radio person in the business and well-known person. He he interviewed me and he, and he said to me, he's like, you can't hear when you're talking and you, you you can't, you know, when you're talking, you're not listening. So like, it was like his, this thing stuck with me that I better just always be inquisitive and be quiet. Cause there's a lot of kids. I see it now too, where they come in and they want a job in the music business and they think they know it already. Like, how are you going to learn and network? I never did that. I was always like very shy. So I just was like absorbing everything. But that stuck with me when he said that. He's like, if you do that while you're here, you'll learn a lot. So, you know, I did that. I made friends while I was at ADCO. Um, That's when Walter was managing Pantera and they'd gotten signed to ADCO and they all came in. It was amazing there's all fun you know we had a lot of fun with them in the office and um and then uh oh my god when they first had the first album the cowboys from hell and they did the show um it was like the whole floor was a mosh pit you had to go up on the balcony to not be in the mosh pit it was amazing yeah fast forward i heard that there was an a and r job um well an a and r assistant job coming open over at atlantic because i you know, our mail room was next door in the building where Atlantic Records was. So ADCO was in one building, Atlantic, the parent company was next door. Mm-hmm. So I went over and interviewed with Kevin Williamson and Daryl Williams and um, I got the job and I was so excited. Okay, now I'm getting closer. I'm in the A&R department. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I have to back up for a second because first of all, can you, can you just tell listeners who don't know what A&R actually stands for? Yeah. And you know, I, I usually do that because everybody's like, A&R, what's that? It's like a lost thing now. Um, yeah. So A&R um, traditionally is artist and repertoire. And repertoire would be the person from the, the label. So the A is the artist. The repertoire is the person that's at the label representing you, who's putting their whole Rolodex together for you to help you know, move you forward. 
Yes. They're your artist development. They're your label. They're your everything. Like, you know, you need to know the radio guy. You need to know the press person. You need to know the marketing person. You need a good hairdresser. You need a wardrobe stylist. You need a video director. You know? Yeah. That's your Rolodex. Yeah. You better have a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean, it seems to me, because again, even, even for me, I've been around, you know, in the business for a long time and we got signed at one point, we got signed to a subsidiary of Universal Records. I don't even remember if we, if we ever met the A&R person. Um, we did a record, we, we delivered it to the label. We, we met the radio guy and, you know, some of the other executives when we went right. to the office and stuff. But uh, our, our situation was, was different um, in the sense that we didn't have a relationship with, with anyone at the, in A&R, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but from what you're describing, it sounds like you're almost like a movie producer in some ways, um, you know, that you're, you're sort of looking at things from a few thousand feet up and kind of yeah. holistically um, addressing, you know, the needs of the band and, and how mm -hmm. to develop the band from, from a sort of macro level, you know? Yeah. And there's different levels. I think people get confused too. There's A&R scouts. They're the people who go out and like tip off the people that are busy making the records and kind of, you know, comb the earth looking for stuff. And now there are like 20 people sitting in a room just looking at computers to see what streaming numbers are. Mm. Um, so it's not like it was. And then you would have, so you would have field reps and field scouts. Then you'd have scouts that were maybe your assistant, you know, doubling up. And then there were um, reps for a band that, you know, they would kind of see see things through then you have the next level which is like you know the manager as you're growing into it then the, usually the vp of anr would be the person then that could write the check and and sign the band so okay. you know you had to get their blessing some places you had to get the vp the senior vp and the president's blessing it just depended on your relationships with the um, senior executives of, of um, creative so yeah there's like different <laughs> hierarchy in there yeah yeah well it sounds pretty complicated but um i i do now i guess we'll let's i want to ask you now since i mentioned i'd file away the scout thing first i want to ask did you ever work as a scout oh yeah well okay. so as, a, as an a and r assistant i was out all the time okay, watching so and looking okay so so all right then we should back up real quick and say you got this job at atlantic right mm -hmm. And now you're an a, assistant A&R or A&R assistant. And, and was that your first kind of um, foray into the world of A&R was to be a scout? Yeah. Or was there and, something I mean, before that? No, that was it. I mean, I was always out anyway because I wanted to network. I was just, I always wanted to do my homework. I felt the more people I knew, it just came natural. Mm -hmm. Just know everybody. I mean, you know, friends with all the... Um, the guy, the door guys at the club, instead of the, the booking people, I made friends with the door guys and I would like, Hey, you want some free CDs? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to bring you some CDs. And they would just let me in all the time then. And mm. they got to know me. We were friends and it's kind of like, I always thought of it this way. What can I do to take care of you? So you can take care of me. That was one of my first things that I felt worked. Mm. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about what can you do for me? What can you do? What, give me this. I deserve this. No, I always went about it. Like, what can I do for you? And then you're going to help. Me. Yeah. So yeah. That, 
that was the key. And I always wanted to help everybody. And because of that, being at a label, you're in a good place to do that with networking and connecting people. And then you just kind of build these, you know, all these relationships mm-hmm. all over the place. Yeah. So, so what, what's it like to scout talent? Um, well, you, what are you looking uh, for when you go see a band and. Well, things happen in weird ways. Each thing, each situation is different. So for instance, when um, I was an assistant, I got, I would get cassettes that would come in that were unsolicited. And I would, I would listen to them because my boss was like, yeah, if you have time, listen to those. Because he would be getting solicited material. So my boss is the A&R person. He's the A&R executive. So yeah. he's getting assigned projects to go in the studio of artists that are already signed. Um, for instance, while I was there, we worked on Mr. Big, um, their big record with To Be With You. Um, and then um, we worked on Foreigner Greatest Hits. So, you know, we were, you know, they had a couple of new songs they were working on. Um, and then putting all those things. So putting those projects together and then still keeping our ears open for new stuff. And um, so I would, I would go through the tapes and one came through um, from the Deftones mm. and my boss didn't know the manager or anybody. And the manager was a young guy from Sacramento. His name was Dave Park. And I listened to it. I was like, wow, these guys are really good. I don't know what it was about it, but something that, there was an energy about them. And I liked the flow, the cadence of the way uh, that Chino sang and, and just the, something was cool about it. It had a really good rhythm to them and catchy. And mm-hmm. so I was like, you know, I want to go see these guys live. And I, so I called the manager and I said, hey, um, you know, I told him who I was at Holly. I work in the A&R department. I said, I'm, I'm the assistant for Kevin Williamson. And I said, well, tell me about this band. And so that's what you do. You like interview the manager and ask them, you know, what's up. Blah, blah. And then he said, well, we're going to be coming down there and playing soon. It's like, all right. It's like, I'll let you know. It's like, great. So they were playing the coconut teaser and I went and nobody knew who they were. They came down from Sacramento and there might've been maybe one or two other scouts there. Mm. And there was only like five people in the room. Nobody knew who they were. So they got an yeah. early slot. And I, and I was just like, they were incredible. Mm -hmm. They had an energy. They were very dynamic. The songs were catchy and just, I don't know. It's just that thing that, that feeling. Yeah. There was like the feeling it's not, it's not rocket science. There's really nothing you could put your finger on just a feeling. Yeah. And so I just became a fan and I stayed in touch with them. I told my boss about him. No, yeah, I'll go check him sometime. So like two years of that, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they had made friends with corn who were yeah, uh, coming up in the uh, orange County area and they would trade markets. Okay. You guys come down here and play with us. We'll go up there and play with you. Okay. So then they were building a following and then my boss started hearing the buzz, you know, from different people, maybe their attorney or whatever, because it's always like the attorney talking about it or maybe um, booking agents are talking about it. And, um, and then he, uh, he flew up to, now this is the bad part. Can I tell you about the bad part about being an assistant? I want to hear all about the bad parts. Okay. This is the bad part. So he's like, yeah, I'm going to go, I want to go check him out. 
I'm going to fly, I'm going to go up to uh, Sacramento and they're, they're going to do a showcase for me and the senior guy and one of our staff producers. And he's like, if, when, when we do that, you can go or something like that. And I was like, okay, so we get it all set up and then I'm not allowed to go. Oh, this is the, like, I don't know if this was because of my position or if it was because of his own, like trying to protect him himself and not wanting to lose the credit or was I, because I'm a female, like, I don't know. I don't know what it was. So I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to say it wasn't cool. Yeah. So they go up there to watch it. And the other person that was there for the same day was Guy Osiri from Maverick. So you got Atlantic Records there and he got Maverick there. And they showcase. I go home from my, the office. I hadn't talked to my boss really. I'm mad at this point. Yeah. I get a message because I've become friends with the manager of the band. I get a message on, remember those like little like tapes? And you're, you know, and you're recording. Yeah, oh, sure. <laughs> Not voicemail. It was a recorded tape. Yeah. I get home and there's a message for me on my answer machine, a machine. And, and uh, it says, well, Holly, we played for both labels. We like so-and-so, the guy who's the senior guy. And we like the producer, but your boss is a square peg in a round hole. Mm. And if you're not going to be our a person, we're signed with Biosatiria. Oh, okay. Guess what happened? Oh, God. Don't put me in this position. Deftone signed to Maverick with Guy Osiri. Oh, man. And then for like a couple years after that, like Steph had my number. We stayed in touch, the, the guitar player. And um, he, was, he would call me at home. Hey, do you think we should stay with Terry Date? Or should we go with this person? <laughs> what, what does your A&R person say? Well, I don't. I know what he says. I want to know what you think. Oh. So I always stayed friends with, with the artists. Yeah. Afterwards. There was no hard feelings. You know? Yeah. I mean, you, you taught, you, you brought it up and then you said, you don't want to go there, but I feel like I really want to go there. I want to ask you about, um, you know, women in the industry, you know, and, and God, I, I feel like women are underrepresented in the industry. Yeah. Um, we're getting better. <laughs> yeah. No, I sense that too. Um, but what, I mean, can you do you feel comfortable sharing? I mean, that's to me, that's an example of, of something like yeah, that. Yeah, I have no problem talking about this because so I, what I'm was such, your experience like then? Yeah. You know, when I started out as an assistant, um I, you know, you know, young, blonde, whatever, that guys are hitting on you when they come in and they think you're just the coffee girl or whatever or they think you're the groupie that got lucky and got a job. And I was like, no, that's, that's not me. You know, yeah. I want to do this for a career. And so when I started seeing this all the time and not feeling like I was really getting taken seriously. So I dyed my hair. So I was blonde and then I dyed my hair and I started wearing maxi dresses. Like mini skirts were big back then, but I started wearing maxi dresses and like leggings and pants and like kind of, I went goth. So you dyed your hair black? Is that? No, it was like, it was like an eggplant, like a burgundy. Okay. And I had like the bob, like it was like the hair mm -hmm. and, you know, wore my makeup a certain way. And 
And then, uh, you know, it was like funny because over time, like I always kept my life private and, you know, I had guys out that I dated that were musicians, but I didn't bring them around the office and I didn't take them to any events. So no one really knew who I was dating. I wanted to keep that, you know, secretive mm. and got to the point where, you know, not that it matters. And I, you know, I don't want any backlash on this, but, you know, there were guys that were like the boys club. The word was coming back to me, my junior manager friends, because they weren't quite executives yet either saying, oh, well, everybody thinks you're gay. I'm like, what? They're like, because you, you're always with girls at these things and they hit on you and you don't want to go. I'm like, I don't want to go with these guys. They're slime bags. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, I'm not interested. And they're like, double my age. <laughs> like, no. yeah. I'm here because I'm studying. I'm working and studying to get where I want to go. Mm-hmm. So that's my take on on that and there are times where you know you get hit on and you're like oh well if I go out with that guy what's that going to happen later like my business is going to be aired in the industry Mm because guys talk I hate to say it's true they talk so I was like no I'm going to keep myself you know private separate from the industry people I didn't my rule was don't date any industry people Mm -hmm. none sounds like a good rule yeah I was I worked and worked and worked you know fast forward I didn't get married till I was 44. I wasn't engaged. I didn't live with anybody. I just did the music business and I had some boyfriends here and there and I just kept it low profile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I, it's, you know, it's, I mean, it, what it's, a, it's 2021 now and obviously it's still an issue where, you know, you still hear about this power issue. You well, know? I'm going to, I'm going to say something on that though, too. You do have to be, you have to use your head though. I mean, I hear the stories and some of them, you know, I, yeah, I'm all on the female side and I'm all about female empowerment, but you also have to know what you're doing. What, what is your responsibility as a female? What are you doing? You know, do, are you setting those boundaries? Like I did, you know, because mm-hmm. if you set them, then they can't be crossed. But if you allow yourself to be naive you're going to put yourself in a bad position and then you're going to have to get yourself out of it. So, you know, there's two sides to this. I mean, I'm not, and I'm I'm not denying that there are real, real animal scumbags that take advantage of naive women, but I'm saying you have to be smart. You have to be smart. You have to know the difference. You have to know, okay, I'll meet you for a drink. Let's talk business. But it doesn't, the meeting doesn't go up into the, up into the hotel room. I mean, unless you like the guy and you plan on hooking up with him or something, you keep it, keep it in the public. Well, I mean, to me, it's, it's, it, um, I mean, I'm a guy. So my take is from the perspective of a guy, obviously, but to me, it always feels like, you know, it's a man, it's a man wielding whatever power they feel they have mm-hmm. over a woman. Um, you know, that there's some sort of transactional relationship that the man believes can exist where he can say, I need X, Y, or Z from you, or else I will use the power that I have to fuck up your life, you know? And um, yeah. I'm fortunate I didn't get around any of that. I don't well, know how I skirted around that, but then there were some real bad situations that happened that were big legal things that happened in my time. 
you know, Geffen had some things that happened. I'm mm. not going to name names, but there was some really, really bad things that happened. And yeah. maybe it was because I was aligned with some really great um, uh, male friends in the business mm. too. Um, I don't know, but I just, I was never felt, I've never, I've, I can't say never ever, but a lot, and it, it was a struggle, but I never felt manipulated. Mm. I never felt like if you don't do this, I'm going to ruin your career. I guess I always felt like I'm going to do it no matter what anyway. So you can't play that game with me, mm. you know? Yeah. Well, that's, that's fortunate. I mean, that's good. And you obviously did it. I mean, <laughs> here we are. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, that just leads me to my sort of next questions, which is you started as an assistant. Um, a and person at Atlantic. What was your next move? Like as we kind of start to get toward present day Holly Hutchison, what was your next move on your arc? Well, I I made friends with Jolene Cherry, and um, Le well Leslie Reed was Jolene's assistant, and we were working, and I was Kevin Williamson's assistant. We were working on Encomium. Um, you know, and then the Led Zeppelin tribute album mm -hmm. together and um, got to know Jolene, who is a force to be reckoned with in the industry. And um, she she was doing soundtracks um, and uh, like Batman Forever and stuff like that with some, some major entities and stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm spacing yeah. on names right now, mm -hmm. but she she uh, was friendly with you know, like Doug Morris and a few other um, of the executives within Warner Chapel and Atlantic. And so she was making her way too. Um, and so they decided this is when A&R research started um, out of Atlantic in New York and they wanted to have somebody on the West coast. So Jolene asked, can, can I promote Holly and have her in my office over on Melrose she had a she had a Warner Chapel publishing deal, and then she was consulting and doing things with Atlantic Records, and um, and they approved it. So she hired me, and I got out of my assistant position and was now A and R research. And they flew me to New York, and um, Nick Casanelli was doing it, and Dick Vanderbilt, and they told me how to do it. And uh, so I started doing that, which was you know, calling um, radio and looking at BDS and sound scan and looking for patterns and calling retail, which I had done before. Right. So I'm no stranger to calling retail, but now I get to call and say I'm an a and r person and they wanted to take my call. <laughs> <laughs> so, and looking for artists that way. Mm -hmm. And that's how I found Blink-182. Okay. So can you tell me about that, the Blink-182 experience? Yeah. So I would call, like I'd go into work one day and I'd be like, okay, where do I want to call today? What part of the country? And yeah. you just pick a city, pick an area. I'll call San Diego. Okay. So I'm calling San Diego stores and they're like, oh, what are your big records? Offspring, you know, bad religion, the, you know, the, the whole punk scene was happening. And I said, okay, no effects. I go, who else? They're like, oh, there's this young band called Blink-182 coming up. Oh, they're selling really good. They're not signed. Oh, they got this little indie distribution thing. Okay. So I, I get a hold of their manager and like, oh, yeah, we're going to play um, 
Lake Arrowhead or some kind of skateboard or um, snowboard thing. Okay. So I get permission from Jolene and me and uh, Leslie, her assistant. She goes, yeah, take Leslie and your intern up too. Okay. <laughs> Girls weekend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we all drive up there and we get this. We have no idea where we're going. It's this hotel. And we go in there and it looked like a um, fancy, uh, how do I want to say this, birthday cake kind of frosting looking uh, duvets or, you know, bedspreads and pink frilly lace on the, <laughs> the lampshades that look like a birthday cake in the, in the room. I'm like, how do we find this place? I don't know. So we get a hold of the guys in the band and, and Blink and they're like, yeah, we're just we're, we're hanging out. I'm like, Oh, let's go get some Mexican food. Okay. So we go to this place, we eat food. And they're like, I'm like, come over and hang out with us before the show a little bit. So they come over. We want to get to know you. So they come over, we're hanging out at the hotel. We have them come up to the room. Not, nothing weird. Like literally mm-hmm. there's three of us and them. they come up to the room and they're kids. Like, uh, they're like 17, 19 and 15. And we have our intern with us and, and Leslie and me, and we're sitting there talking, huh? 15. Yeah, Tom was 17 and Mark was 19. So was it Travis Barker at the time? No, no. Oh, okay. Keith or Kevin or something. He was from Reno and he was in the band. And so they, so they come over and they're like telling us funny stories and they go, um, wouldn't it be really funny if like, this is one of those places where like, if you lift the bed, there might be like a, there might be like a, a porno movie and like some granny pink underwear or something like that. And we're laughing like, oh my God, this is hysterical. So Tom goes, yeah, let's lift up the bed and see. We're like, okay. So they lift up the bed and there's granny underwear there. I called the front desk. What kind of place is this? You got underwear. Wait between the factors of the front spring. And I'm like, and how did you know? I, like you're always how would you know this no i don't know they were so funny they were everything that you saw in those videos in person that was that yeah that's amazing (laughs) Um, like two years of that yeah and and they wouldn't sign them oh my god sign them they were growing oh they're just in san diego blowing up then they were in riverside blowing up they're coming up to la now blowing up crazy so i don't know where did they end up going eventually um they signed with mca okay because doug okay and then this and this so this is kind of coming to the end where jolene is like not sure what's going on because you know this is the other thing about anr people they're attached to whoever's in charge so jolene at this point has moved gotten promoted to head of west coast atlantic records we all moved from her office on melrose we had moved into Atlantic Records again. I was back to Atlantic Records. This time I have an office now. So mm-hmm. I've been promoted into my own office and I'm an, I'm an AR executive now. Um, and I'm under Jolene and, and she's like, I don't know, you know, there's things happening. Um, I don't know if Doug's staying. So whoever's in charge, like you're with them. Yeah. It's like a team thing, whoever your relationship and alignment is. So if that person's leaving, then you might be leaving. Right. Doesn't matter. Uh, you're, you're out. Your team's out. Next guy's in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so Jolene leaves. Doug left. He went to MCA. 
he signed Blink-182. Oh, okay. <laughs> over there, whoever did. But yeah. I mean, he was running it at that point. He's over there now. And it, it was like, I think that's how it went. Because he was at Warner Brothers for a little bit. And then he went over there. Oh, yeah. Jolene was still there when he was in Warner Brothers, I think. Him and Danny Goldberg went there. And Valazoli was running Atlantic. And then Doug went over to MCI. It's just so many moves. Mm-hmm. And I should know this because I used to collect all the articles and keep them in my core, uh, all my favorite executives. So I knew where they were going, what they were doing, yeah. what they were signing. It's right. like baseball for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I want to ask you real quickly about the pressure thing, because you're kind of you're kind of teasing at it with this whole idea of sort of your fate hinging on this team or, you know, uh, what I can imagine is probably a relatively high turnover rate. You know, I, I mean, um, so that's my daughter. She's saying hello. Uh, Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, so what wh- what is the pressure like to be in that at that level? You know, I mean, how do do you not feel the do you just manage it well? No, there's pressure. I mean, you're, you're pushing all the time. Like they can only sign so many things and you're still coming up underneath people. And there's so many people in the, that have to just make a decision on who's getting signed, what's getting signed, how much money there is to sign what, um, you know, and then you also have to like, be really careful about what you're bringing. Like I was never a person to bring something every week. Because I learned under Kevin and Jason, you know, and Amit, was it the next best thing since sliced bread? So it was kind of like, hold your breath and don't talk about anything unless you really believe in it. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, as I grew under Kevin and Jason started giving me some opportunities, um, you know, he started paying attention to me and he, he would, you know, I really love this band, James Hall. And he was like, but are they the best next best thing since sliced bread? And I'm like, that's what Ahmed would say. And I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, this guy's incredible. And I, so, you know, then I got to fly up to San Francisco and see them, but you always had to be like ready to stick your neck on the chopping block. If yeah. Wrong. And, you know, they used to say, if, if you're not doing that, then you're playing it safe just to keep your job. Mm-hmm. But the people that, really made a name for themselves and really show the talent for discovering things weren't afraid to say, yeah, 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 this is it. This is it. So I felt like, you know, my, my batting average was great because all the ones I brought to the table did get signed and they, most of them went on to be platinum, mm-hmm. multi-platinum, which is even if amazing. I didn't sign them, I still saw them before everybody. Yeah. So yeah, the pressure was there, but as I kept, um, you know, like it was Deftones and it started with Skid Row. Right. And then at that point they're huge Deftones, Alanis Morissette. Um, and then there was Blink-182 and they were taken up and, you know, you just, you have to keep, you have to keep being right. That's yeah. how you buy time. Right. And you, you, so you mentioned something about um, wondering why you weren't invited on that trip and maybe it was someone what what I inferred from what you were saying was that someone else might have wanted to be able to take credit for the discovery. That's what I think happened too. But yeah. I don't want to say that because I'm friendly with the person that did that now. Yeah. Well, we that can, person we, has changed a lot since then. 
we can um, we can uh, protect the innocent or the guilty, and we can speak in hypothetical terms. Um, yeah, is that you know, as you grow up, you know what I guess say, Ted, right on that thing, on that note, as you grow up and you or grow into your places in the industry, and you're in the position maybe that person was, you can look back and see. Oh, okay, I might I might be handling it different now that I'm in that position, but I can understand better where the uncertainty and the pressure was for them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah I get that. But yeah. when you're younger, younger, you're invincible. You're like, I got, I got to win. I want to make it. Yeah, yeah, right, right. You're trying to get, you're trying to make something happen, and someone else is like, well, I blocking think I'm going to handle Road this blocking from you. now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's got to that's got to be frustrating. I can only imagine. It, it is. Yeah. <laughs> um all right, so I have two more questions for you as we sort of get to the end here. I I want to ask you what it means for you to be an artist advocate. Hmm. Well, there's some days where I go, why am I still doing this? I was going to ask you if there were times <laughs> when you just feel like saying that's it, I'm done. <laughs> every time like it's like well it, it's a journey when you go out on your own you know you don't have the big cushy paycheck anymore yeah and, so you you uh, i mean you we kind of glossed over that part but you you are now independently you are operating independently yeah and, and you are the you are in charge of your company and your you know all of that kind of and your brand you know that's that's all you know. almost two decades we're getting there wow i didn't realize it was that long okay yeah yeah, um, I kind of saw something changing because, I mean, you know, fast forward, I went to Capitol Records. Mm-hmm. Um, I was brought in um, initially by Gary Gersh and Craig Aronson. And, um, you know, God rest Craig Aronson, such a great guy. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I got into there and I built my career. And then Perry Watts Russell was the senior um, VP there. And he was amazing as a champion. And then um, I got to know. Roy Lott, who was our president and um, Roy. So I had two very supportive executives who had built their way in the industry. And um, I felt that's where I really started to blossom. Mm-hmm. And, and at that point I had their ear and their support. I actually beat myself up harder because I didn't want to let them down. Mm-hmm. And there was a, there was a period there at Capitol where I developed Crohn's disease and I was, um, I was in the hospital quite often and, you know, I'd be in there, um, you know, admitted and I would be approving mixes on a boom box that was sent over to me in my hotel room, my hospital yeah. room. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. And then, you know, then it's like anything and back to the teams thing, you know, then they're elevating, uh, Roy lot. So Gary Gersh had left and he start, went back to management. Roy Lott was the president, but now after my few years there, Roy's being escalated or repurposed somewhere else in capital EMI. And then they brought in Andy Slater. And at this point, you know, I have three artists that I've signed. And I have to tell you, I signed my three artists on the spot. Mm -hmm. I never had to do the dance of weeks. That doesn't happen very often. You mentioned years too, in some cases. You mentioned yeah. a couple things where it was like a couple of years, I, like with the. I brought tones. them in, and they got signed on the spot. Mm-hmm. And um, you know the the last the last one that I did was a tough one. Um, 
because uh, it, there were a band called Vega Four, and this is a, a team thing. So they were brought to me by Safta Jaffrey, who, God rest his soul, not here anymore. It's like my biggest champion. I miss that man so much. I'm sure a lot of people that will listen to this or watch this will know him. He was a gentleman from the UK who um, many, he was well loved and liked by a lot of people. He managed um, producers, you know, in his last couple of decades. And he also put together Muse and, and built Muse for eight years. Um, and, uh, and then he brought me Vega four and we signed them. Um, I signed their record deal on top of the cap on top of the world trade center no in kidding. December 2000. I always wow. wanted to do things differently. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I signed them and, um, they were an amazing, amazing English. I re- well, they were from all different parts of the world. So that's why we did it. Um, and then uh, we did this amazing record. And then Perry and Andy Slater had a falling out. Um, and then Perry quit. And, um, and then Andy, this is an example of what it's like to be with an a person when your team's not there anymore. And there's other people that are now wanting you gone because you've gotten to sign things and they don't like it. You know, mm-hmm. it's politics. Yeah. So, oh, she keeps getting the person's attention. So she gets to sign things. The budget's going there. So they, it, it was just, it was awful. Um, so I started writing notes in the A&R meetings to drop my artists. Really? I would start passing notes up to the president, to Andy Slater. Please drop my artist. Please drop my artist. Because they were sitting there stifled. They weren't getting released. They weren't getting the budgets they were supposed to get. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Vega four, he sat there going, well, if I release the record, then Perry's going to get credit for it. And Holly, well, I was there, but Perry was the senior guy at the time that signed him. And, um, but then he goes, if I don't release the record, then I look really stupid because it's an amazing record. Mm-hmm. So that's what was going on. And then Saft is coming to me. Can you help us, us get them out of the record? Can you help us get them off the label? And then there were internal people working against me too. And they wanted to demote me. And I said, you know what? If this is this team here, I don't want to be a part of it. How much are you going to get me to pay me to get out of here? I want to buy me out of my contract. Mm-hmm. That's what I want. I want to be mm-hmm. a Safta who was managing bag of four and muse said, Holly, you'll do fine on your own. You know, believe in yourself. I believe in you. A lot of people believe in you. You don't need to be here. This is a bad climate. Go out on your own. You're, you know, you're so such a champion. So, okay. So they paid me out of my thing and I, and I left. And then um, a little while after I had a meeting with Andy Slater and he apologized to me and said, you know, I was listening to the wrong people about you. Mm. I made a big mistake. Mm. And, you know, we left it that on good terms. And it was like, I don't know, six months later. A lot of yeah. people got fired that were the problem. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying is politics wow. and teams. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I'm like, okay. But the cool thing is SAFTA got the got the deal for Vega 4 over at Columbia. They had a big single with a Jeep commercial, Time of Our Lives with Paul Van Dyke. And Johnny has, you know, the band then broke up after some time. And Johnny McDade, I'm so proud of him to this day. He he went on champion Ed Sheeran. 
And he's the co-writer of some of those big hits for Ed Sheeran. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So I gave him his first record deal on top of the World Trade Center. (laughs) That's a great great story. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's things like that. Why I want to do it. So, okay. He's gone on. Maybe he wasn't a superstar artist for years, but he's gone on to do something to help somebody else. Um, you know, my, my wine rapper that I signed, we never really got the record out, but I did write a letter to Stevie wonder. And I did get an invite for him to perform at the democratic national convention that year at, with Stevie wonder, which was his mm-hmm. dream. And I remember sitting there when we got the call and we were on the phone with like tears in my eyes, sitting in my office at Capitol going, this is why I do this. This mm-hmm. is why I do this. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So, I mean, I mean, by way of the story you just told, I mean, you're describing what it's like to be an artist advocate. Yeah. You know, I mean, and I've heard we knew bands um, and there were always stories floating around. And the word that was used was sabotage, you know, like labels would sign a band and then they would just sit on the record and it would never go anywhere. Yeah. And and they did that, too, to take them off the market sometimes yeah, because right. they had something similar. Exactly. And they t- didn't want the competition. Yeah. I'll tell you, I'm going to leave some names out, but probably <laughs> people who are savvy would know. But we heard the same story about uh, a label signing Dave Matthews band mm-hmm. and then a band that we knew that we used to tour with all the time, getting signed to the same label and getting sacrificed because they were similar enough and you know this band was hot stuff kind mm-hmm. of coming up underneath Dave Matthews and they they signed them and just sort of locked them down and and that was the end of that band you know um, and that happens yeah that's okay. real yeah and I, it's actually really great to hear you say that and that it's not just you know um what just the legend of some kind but yeah that was that was what we heard um and uh, oh yeah, so that happened all the time. Yeah, and it's really refreshing to hear you, you know, have a different perspective about really wanting to fight for for artists. You know, I'm I, yeah, I like uh, begging them to drop them from the yeah. <laughs> one of the few A and R people that actually can you please drop my artist, please. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, for for the reason we were just talking about, you know, I mean, if the label's just gonna sit on, you know. It's just going to sit on the record. The band is screwed in so many ways, you know? Oh my gosh. Especially if it's like a two or three album deal or something, you know? There's so many things. And that's the thing. Like when people sit on the outside that, you know, hopefully through this conversation, they'll learn that there's so many things going on behind the front. You know what I mean? There's all these other things that are happening behind it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm so happy to be out of it because, you know, while it's been ups and downs and, you know, like wins and losses and a big learning curve, um, I really love what I do every day. And I'm at a point now where, you know, I choose what I want to work on. Mm-hmm. I choose which artists I want to work with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've built this kind of system I built my own label. Um, I have a website. I'm sure you've seen that. We don't have to go into all that unless you want to. But a and our girl. Yeah. a and our girl. There. It's because everybody would call me up and say, can I pick your brain? Can I pick your brain? We listen to my music. And I'd be like, 
you know what, I'm not getting paid, you know, by the label to sit there to listen to music anymore. You know, I have mm-hmm. to, if you want my professional opinion, then you need to go sign up at the website and, and pay the fee for my time. And I will give you my time and expertise and full attention, listen to your song, give you feedback and tell you where you can go from there. Mm-hmm. And then we also have, you know, the 20 minute consultation, which is, you know, once I, and that's part of the evaluation is if you're just singing in the shower and I don't think you have the talent, unless it really makes sense, I'm not, I'm not interested in taking your money and having a conversation with you. That's not what this is about. I see some kind of, well, maybe they could do this or that. Then I'll sit and talk to them, not to make a bunch of promises, but it's more like education. Yeah. Like, you know, I ask the hard questions. What do you want to do? Do you know how expensive this is going to be? Do you have any time, how many years is going to take? Do you know the competition you have? Kind of like, you know, a mentor. Yeah. And then yeah. we go into the uh, people that hire me that are already kind of got something going on and or what more going on. We have different levels of retainers then where they say, can you guide me? I want to do this. And I ask them, what are your goals? If you don't know what your goals are, I'm not going to work with you because I'm not here to take your money and you think you're getting this and it's that I want a clear idea of what you're trying to get to. So there's measured results. And that's why I'm an artist advocate because there's a lot of people out there taking money and not doing that. Oh yeah. Yeah, of course. And um, it's, well, it's a cutthroat, it's a cutthroat business, you know, Uh, there's, you're right about, I mean, the competition um, people who, you know, artists, take gigantic risks to to kind of dedicate their lives to their art and their creativity and you know i know i know that the that the industry itself takes big risks on artists too because right. it's the industry it's the labels and things that are shelling out the cash to to um, make a record and promote it and things like that mm-hmm. so you can understand why it's it's not easy to get signed you know, and, and not just to get signed, but to have the labels remain committed all the way through, um, you know, and we had a similar experience. We got signed um, mm-hmm. and then we we made a record and we we went and played a set in the in the uh, the offices of the Universal in Columbus Circle in New York City. All the execs were happy and the radio guy was thrilled. And then the radio guy got fired. And then it was like, somebody oh, always getting fired. Our like, biggest, yeah, our biggest advocate and most excited, you know, member of this team is just, just gone, you know? Yeah. And then you oh could my just God. Feel, talk about wind out of the sails. Yeah. You could just feel the energy go. And we just knew, you know, we knew, okay, well, you know, we got close on that, on that record deal, but, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's just, you know, that's the way it goes. Sometimes yeah. if you're yeah. lucky, it, it goes great. Um, Anyway, so, all right, so here's the last thing I want to ask you about, which is just, as we mentioned sort of at the top, you know, you've had an extremely busy summer and you've been working on some exciting new stuff. Do you want to just, you know, talk a little bit about this new stuff, these new projects that you have going? Oh, okay. Yeah, a couple of different things. Um, Let's keep busy. Uh, Well, A&R Girls being, you know, developed right before the pandemic, we had two successful showcases where, you know, a promoter from um, a region will invite me out. They'll cover my travel and everything and um, get some bands together to pay for my time to be there. So like they each get their allotted 
time slot to sit with me one-on-one, play me their music, talk about where they're at in their careers, kind of like being a doctor, you know, hearing where, where are you at? What's going on? What are your symptoms? How can I help you? (laughs) (laughs) What kind of direction can I give you and some suggestions and, or, you know, and like two of them might be playing the big show that, that while I'm there and I go and watch them play live. And so we had a couple of success. One was in um, Columbia, uh, Missouri. Um, and that was with, uh, with Jason Schrick of APS Productions. And he's a really good hustler in that region of the country, building artists and everything. And he really loved the A&R Girl thing. Um, and then we did one up in um, Green Bay area, Appleton, Wisconsin. And that was more in the studio. Um, that was with Chris Dobry, who does a lot of concerts up that way. And Jamie Fontaine and the levels, his band and they were great to, to work with. I ended up actually working on two projects out of these things. One was Jason's band, The Many Color Death. We put a record out on A&R Girl and worked it. Um, and it got as far as like in the top 30, I believe, on B, on the on the Billboard or mainstream indicator chart. And Jamie Fontaine did, I think, close to top 20 as well. Um and then uh, we picked it, picked it back up again, and I went out and did a Columbus, Ohio one with um, Shakers Tavern mm-hmm. um, out in Columbus, Ohio, and uh, that that was cool. A lot of metal rock bands for that one. Mm-hmm. I was a headbanger, went outside. It was one of the first ones they did again after the pandemic, so it was really cool. Um, and so, if anybody's looking for places to play while they're touring, they should go there during uh, to Columbus. And then uh, we went down to Nashville on that same trip. So I went out with my husband, 2,000 miles. Let's get on the road. (laughs) We've been cooped up. (laughs) So we drove. And then we went down to Nashville and we did one um, with with Malcolm Springer. Oh, my friend Malcolm. My dear, dear boy, Malcolm. Malcolm did it with me. So we did it at at the uh, East Iris um, Universal Studios down there that was House of Blues. Um, one of the bungalows, we had a showcase and uh, over over Streamcast, which is another project I'm involved in. And that's uh, that's um, something that um, we could go into another time. But, you know, I'm an advocate of everything ahead of the time. And I yeah. think Streamcast, just really quick, is is awesome for artists to have an e-commerce and live broadcasts. Um, all in one place as their own domain. That's what I do is I, I enable that. Yeah. Um, I also built a new thing. So I have A&R Girls Streamcast, which is where my workshops are going to be held now. Um, and then we have um, a new one now called Behind the Streams Streamcast, mm-hmm. which is going to be packages that we sell out to the, to the bigger artists to do these fun events with their fans because they're doing stuff on Instagram and places like that and giving it away for free. Yeah. So it's an opportunity for the artists to monetize. Absolutely. In yes. the moment. And that's, that's can, the magic word for artists. Yeah, we're monetizing you know? and it's not like YouTube. <laughs> so you can go on there and do a VOD and like video on demand and all of it. You're like from dollar one, you're making money. And we're, mm-hmm. so we're just taking a small percentage, mm-hmm. like 20% on each dollar. So you're making 80 cents on the dollar instead of the fraction yeah. that you're making on A, B, C, and D. Let's not like come down because I'm working projects and they might block <laughs> my artists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
but um, you know what I mean. The other yeah. big thing, yeah, is sure, di- di- diplomatically penny. put, very diplomatically yeah. put. And then I took on a new artist um, that I'm uh, I'm working the record with her. She came back after um, taking some time down in a hiatus, and her name is Lacey Younger, and she is a rocking chick. She's awesome, like Americana, like a female John Fogarty Americana mm. chick, mm-hmm. and she has a song. That we're launching her uh, her record will come out in uh, 2022, and uh, right now we're working the first single off that called "The Goods," mm-hmm. and she's got the goods. Yeah, go check that out. Yeah, and um, I'm excited about that. And a couple other things coming. Mm-hmm. Um, I found one. So we did the showcase with uh, with Malcolm in Nashville, and we had three artists do it on the streamcast anarchworld.streamcast.com platform, and um, they were chosen out of a thousand entries through Reverb Nation. Oh wow, cool! Yeah, we narrowed down three, and they—it was two females. Um, there, uh, there was Brianna and Robin, Robin Shane, Brianna, and um, Bob Green. And Bob Green's voice—oh my goodness! Mm. Rare to find a voice like that. So Malcolm and I have chosen him. We haven't made the announcement yet. We're making it tomorrow as finally from June, the winner. And mm-hmm. I'm also going to put his, a single out on my label. Yeah. Oh, that's and great. That's what I'm doing. A that's... little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah. 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 You're, you're busy. I know. Um, I just want to say for listeners, Malcolm Springer is an engineer, uh, you know, recording engineer, mix engineer and producer now. I mean, he's, he's become quite the producer. Um, and, uh, he, he recorded and mixed one of my band's records back in the, in the 1990s. Oh. And that's, yeah, Which that's one? how I got to know Malcolm. Uh, we did a record called Jet Smooth Ride, mm-hmm. um, and we recorded it in a in an old house, big old house in Ossining, New York, um, that mm-hmm. belonged to some friends of ours who were also in a band. And it was just a it was like it was just a grand time all around. <laughs> I'm sure Malcolm, it was. Yeah, anything Malcolm, with Malcolm's a grand time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's larger than life, and um, I need to I need to start texting him again because I I want to have I've been wanting to have him on the show since like I decided I was going to start this podcast. I was like, I gotta have Malcolm on. He's a nut job. He'll be awesome, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, you know, Malcolm's um, he's awesome, and I've watched him. Uh, what's the word? Metamorphosis. <laughs> I yeah. watched him morph and I call he is an alien. We know that. Um, gosh, I've known him for like 20 some years and watched him through all his phases. And, yeah. you know, he's, I think he's at his best now. I mean, he's everything, you know, it's like a, he's like a fine wine. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> I mean, the impression. I can't I'm say getting, enough you know? things about him because, yeah. you know, there's just been times where he's had some rough times and some good times and, you know, he's got it going on now. And I'm going to yeah. say that so that everybody that watches this keeps an eye on Malcolm Springer. Mm-hmm. I just have to, this is totally apropos of nothing other than Malcolm is involved. But we, when we were touring, <laughs> he was living in Na- in Memphis at the time. He's in Nashville now. But we, when we were touring, we must've had a couple of days off and we ended up at, at House of Blues in Memphis, which <laughs> yeah, I believe was the old Kiva studios where Stevie, yeah. Ray, Stevie Ray Vaughan recorded and stuff. And Malcolm was engineering there. And somehow we got dragged into being the band for this uh, husband and wife couple who were like this evangelical Christian band, which could not be farther afield from what we were as this sort of grungy <laughs> hippie jam band. But we were like, oh, this will be fun. It's a great studio. We'll go in and we'll spend a couple of days and have some fun. That's my teaser 
to a story <laughs> that I'll tell on another episode of the podcast. But but uh, it was wild. Um, but Holly, I just want to thank you so much for your time and for being on the show. This has really been great. You've answered. Yeah, a I've lot had a blast questions. with you. Yeah, great interview. Like, thank you, oh, and thank likewise. and a great conversation. Thank you yes. so much. Yes, absolutely. I feel the same way. And and just real quick for people who want to know more about you, who in fact artists who might want to reach out to you, uh, can you tell them where to go? Sure. You can go to a n r girl.com. So that's A is an apple and is in Nancy R girl.com. Yes. That's pretty much where everything is. And then it's at AR girl on all my socials. You can find me on Facebook, yep. Instagram. Yep. I'm following you on Instagram and Twitter, um, all that stuff. <laughs> yeah. So don't go crazy with, you know, it's just the letter A, the letter N, the letter R girl.com and at A N R girl dot or at A N R girl on Instagram and Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. This has been a wonderful. Um, I look forward to talking with you again at some point. And um, yeah. thank you again for being on the show. Great. Look all right. Thank okay, you. Take care. You too. This episode was produced and edited by yours truly. Special thank you to Holly Hutchison. Really, really happy to have her on the show. A little bit famous theme music by Jay Durius. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'll see you next week for Steve Lillywhite.